0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Sprinkler Nerd Show. I'm your host, Andy Humphrey, and I'm so happy to have you guys with us for another episode. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking again with Denny Richards. This time, I'm going to do most of the talking. Denny's going to ask a few questions. And the premise for this came to be earlier in the week, Denny and I were talking about bidding systems and estimating systems and selling systems and some of the different approaches that are out there and the pros and cons of each of them. And I gave Denny a little backstory into my early experiences in this industry. And it seemed like it would be something really worthwhile to talk about here on the show. And if you're interested, feel free to reach out. We'd love to hear from you as well and get your tips and tricks on estimating and bidding. So here we go. Let's do this. If you are an irrigation professional, old or new, who designs, installs, or maintains high-end residential, commercial, or municipal properties, and you want to use technology to improve your business, to get a leg up on your competition, even if you're an old school irrigator from the days of hydraulic systems, this show is for you. All right, Denny, welcome back to The Sprinkler Nerd Show. Glad to have you on the show today. Always glad to be on the show. Thanks for having me again. As this show evolves, it's helpful for me. I'm glad to have you along so I don't have to talk to myself. This is great. I think one of the things we discussed earlier was maybe going back a little bit uh, into my background and my experience and talking about some of the things I learned or was exposed to earlier in my career and uh, just talk it out with you and you can ask questions because you haven't experienced some of these things and we'll just kind of see where this goes today.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. I'll, I'll be learning right along with everybody else. This is not my area of expertise. So I, if, if you hear a dumb question,
0: it's probably because it's literally a, a dumb question coming out of my, head, my brain. So yeah, it'll be great. Awesome. Okay. Let's see. So I'm going to think back to basically my first job at a college because I was trained as a landscape designer. And I'll preface this by saying I was trained as a landscape designer. I did not know hardly a thing about actual landscape design, uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course, because I went to school. Uh, right. So maybe, maybe explain to them your educational background. That'd be interesting, I think. I went to Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana, graduated in 2001. Actually, I take that back. I did, uh, had to take the fall semester because I needed a few more credits. So, graduated in the fall of 2001 and then uh, left Montana and went to uh, the Baltimore area and got a job with a large landscape contractor that was um, design-build, and uh, commercial and they did maintenance. So they did a little of everything. So they had these different divisions from the commercial division, the residential division, uh, maintenance division, and then the irrigation division worked in all of those areas. And so Mm -hmm. when I started, I was in the landscape design department and they had, I believe, four landscape architects. And I was probably, call me the millennial of that time. I was a young guy out of school who had just been trained in AutoCAD. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I was sort of tasked with initially just taking their landscape drawings that they would draw up just perfectly, you know, with an architect's touch, pen and paper, so to speak, with, you know, old school drafting equipment. And I would digitize them. Oh, wow. You know, so basically what that meant was Taking that plan, uh, measuring it with a scale and reproducing it in AutoCAD. Uh, Sometimes I would be tracing the documents into AutoCAD, but basically just taking their plans, producing them in AutoCAD and then creating a basis in the CAD system where new designs going forward could start with a base map in CAD with the long term progression to be to uh, sort of move from being designing by hand, to designing by the computer. In any case, it didn't last too long. So funny enough, it just <laughs> turned out that I wasn't the guy meant for sitting behind the desk doing the drafting all day long. I wanted to be the guy that was to be out talking with customers. Oh, right. And uh, one of my first mentors who's going to be on a future episode, I wanted him to be in the top five Uh, First episodes, but we haven't had a chance to pin that down. Uh, His name is Paul Bassett. And for those listening, you'll meet him later. Uh, Some of you listening may know him. Uh, He was my first mentor in the business and he was an irrigation salesman. So to make a long story short, I was the young computer guy, if you will. And he was the irrigation salesman and he knew both a lot about irrigation and he also knew how to sell systems and what it took to sell systems. And one of the things that he discovered and then I was able to help with was using the irrigation design in the sales process. For those listening, if you are a contractor, you know that oftentimes when you're presenting the client with your proposal, it's really easy to get caught up in talking about the parts and pieces that you're going to be selling, you know, you may say I'm going to be including uh, this type of controller and it's going to include uh, 16 of this type of sprinkler and it's going to include 12 of this type of sprinkler and it's going to include two drip zones and you sort of walk through all of the components. Uh, but it's hard to visualize it. It really is hard to visualize it. And I think that what happens is, and I was able to experience this firsthand is that the client is left with let's say three proposals if there's three companies doing the work and how do they decide which company to use? And you may have experiences at your own house, Danny. If you have bids for something, uh, how are you going to decide which company to use?
1: Sure, it seems kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, confusing as well. Because from a customer standpoint, if you don't know anything about any of the the uh, equipment, you may have one customer who's proposing a bunch of Rainbird stuff, someone else proposing Hunter, or someone may have a different approach to doing a flower bed, uh, something like that. So really, from a standpoint of just looking at a bunch of equipment on paper, that doesn't seem very helpful to me to a a potential customer who doesn't really know anything about irrigation.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think you, I like what you said there about deciding and reading on the proposal, maybe something like they're going to include rainbird sprinklers. And this is something that I was particular about back then, and I would still recommend to contractors today, is not to focus on the equipment. And I say that because if the customer is choosing, let's, let's use this Rainbird example, if they're choosing Rainbird, they may not be choosing you. So if three customers are all presenting Rainbird and you spend your time talking about Rainbird, you've shifted the focus from you, your company, your value add over to trying to quote unquote sell them on Rainbird and your competitive bids may be doing the same thing.
1: That's a really good point, actually. I hadn't thought about that, but that's... Um, so, you, so when you're speccing something like that out, you're, you're just saying like X number of rotors in this zone, we're going to do a drip zone here. How are, you, how are you kind of presenting that to the customer
0: other than obviously the design? So you do want to list the brands that you're using. You may or may not decide to list the full materials that has some pros and some cons. What I would focus on is talking about your company and you... And if they ask and when appropriate, you talk about the product, but you keep an emphasis on your company and on you and on your warranty and on your referrals and on your happy customers and all the reasons that they should hire you. And this is where going back to the story about my first job and getting into irrigation and my mentor, Paul, what he had figured out. Was that if he could show up for the proposal with an irrigation design in hand, okay, a full sprinkler layout, something showing where all the sprinklers are going to go, all the piping, that that was a huge value add because nobody else was doing it. Nobody was coming to the presentation with the homeowner or the commercial property with an irrigation design. And so, what Paul did is he tapped me. So, remember, I was this young guy out of school. I was happy to work 80, 100 hours a week. It didn't matter. And Paul would say, hey, um, I went out to this house yesterday or I went out to this commercial property. I sketched out where the heads were going to go on this napkin. Can you draw this up in cat? And I was like, heck yeah, I can do that. And so, I got started putting heads on paper and pipe on paper, just following a design, not knowing why there was six heads on a zone or why this number of feet of drip tubing was being used. I was just following Paul's design. To make a long story short, I eventually moved from just doing the drafting and the, and the design into the sales department, where I was actually the one presenting the proposals and doing the selling for the company. And I remember the first project I ever sold. Of course, I was so dang nervous. You know, The first time you're in sales that you have to Get in front of somebody and give your pitch and you're I was just so nervous. You know, I dressed nice. I had this beautiful CAD irrigation system. The paper was all rolled up in my, you know, nerdy uh blueprint uh <laughs> and uh went to present and Paul was with me and we were in uh, Washington, DC at this uh, I would say fairly upscale uh, home. I think the irrigation system was a twelve to fourteen thousand dollar irrigation system. And I just remember rolling out the irrigation design. And at that point, it became really easy because I was just simply showing him the design that we put together and using that design as a differentiator on why they should choose our company instead of the competitors. And uh, sure enough, later on, I think it was that evening, customer called me back. Let's say it was Johnson. Mr. Johnson called me up and said, Andy, just wanted to give you the good news. I've chosen to use you guys for the system. And the reason I did is that you seemed much more professional. You came with this plan. It seemed like you guys knew exactly what you were doing. And so I'm going to use you, even though you were more expensive than the competitors. It seemed like you guys knew what you were doing. So we're going to go with it.
1: Well, yeah, you're, you're adding value there. And I think that I can see now it's... Um, you're, you're selling the right product. You're actually, it is, it's a, you're selling the company. You're not selling the sprinkler heads necessarily. It's the company. So from that standpoint,
0: I think that you guys figured out the right process because you were selling yourselves. Yeah. And then again, for those that are listening, I think that there's so much value in the perception of professional. And if you think about the different types of companies that are out there. It'll range from somebody that may literally potentially write up the proposal on sort of school line notebook paper and say, Here, here's your price. Then you might have another level that has, and I have seen this, where they have pre-canned estimation sheets that historically were carbon copy, you know, and they fill out homeowner or the company's name, the address, and then they maybe list out some parts and pieces And then they tear it off and give one copy to the customer and then they keep a copy. This is just being, you know, a quote sheet. But again, it's done by hand. It's cookie cutter and it's not professional. All the way up to the top level. And this is what I would recommend that everybody do if possible. And it can be easier today to templatize this, if that's even a word, templatize this Mm -hmm. and to draft something up in a narrative form that comes across as a real professional proposal versus a list of materials. makes
1: all the sense of the world to me. It's That's a great way to go. The, the customer has it all laid out. You took the initiative before you ever started to work and put some extra time in to show that you are interested in the job. And then at that point in time, the customer sees some added value there that they're willing to pay a little bit more for this guy's already on top of things. He already knows what he wants to do. It's all set. Uh, That's the guy to go with.
0: Yeah. I think um, it's oftentimes easier to lower the price. It can oftentimes be impossible to raise the price. And actually in this scenario, it likely is impossible. So let's say, uh, highest bid on a project. I'm just going to make up a number is nine thousand three hundred. It's easier for that customer to have a discussion and not necessarily negotiate, but have a discussion where they can change their price, potentially lower it, than it is for someone who comes in at five thousand to attempt to raise their price. They can't come back to the homeowner and add more money unless they come after the fact on a change order, and of course that always looks a little bit sleazy. Uh, but nope. it's always easier to lower the price than it is to raise the price.
1: Right. And I, I don't think you necessarily always want to be the cheapest person in the market because certainly in the, these kinds of situations, you, you people talk. And the minute that you're willing to do something for five, you're not ever going to probably get nine. It's, it's, right. You know, it, it goes beyond just that individual job. It becomes a standard that you set that can be hard to get past I've been in other businesses where the entire goal was to be the cheapest person on the market. And it's, you know, that's
0: not, you're always chasing pennies that way. It's a good point. So oftentimes people will refer to somebody as the cheapest or the lowest price. And in the same time, in the opposite, they can say things like, wow, they're always very expensive. And what I find interesting about the phrase expensive, to me, that is only because the company who is in that scenario is not providing value to support their price. And so if you are going to be, and it's a business decision to be there, and I would agree with it to be the highest bid, you want to make sure that there's enough value there so that when you are chosen, if you are chosen, that your customer receives value for the price, because if they don't, they will perceive you as expensive. But if you provide value You weren't expensive. You were the right choice and they loved every minute of it. I think that's where some of the little details come in, like looking the customer in the eye, shaking their hand, being clean, not wearing jeans with holes in it, taking your shoes off before you go in the house, things like that. So that if you are the most, if you are the highest price, let's not say expensive. If you're the highest price, you provide supporting value. Makes complete sense. Let's, uh, I also want to share a little bit about how we bid systems. Everyone's going to have a slightly different approach to this. I think in general, as an industry, there is a lack of standardization for how jobs are priced. I think that more experienced contractors build better estimating systems over time. They should uh, learn from one job, apply what they learned to the next project so that over the course of time, their estimates get more and more exact in terms of covering their costs and knowing what the costs on a job will be upfront. Generally speaking, there's a couple ways to bid at, uh, that I've seen. The first one just being that they make a rough material list. And I'm talking rough. Sometimes they just count sprinklers. Okay. And then they'll take that and they'll bring it to their supplier. And the distributor will make maybe a little bit more of a modified material takeoff. And then they'll take the material and they'll just add a multiplier. Let's say materials times three. (laughs) That could be their bid. And I kid you not. This could be a $400,000 commercial project. And I have seen this where contractors will take the distributor's material list, multiply it by three or a number, and then submit that as their bid. That seems to not take <laughs> into
1: account a whole lot of things. Uh, right. the first, first thing that comes to my mind is the time involved
0: in in everything. Right. If that project, this would not be the right example, but if that project could be completed in one day, they would just be rolling in dough. If they could take materials times three and do it in one in one day at a you know that high price, they'd be rolling in dough. They could take the materials times three. And it could be a project that stretches out for a year and they uh, lose their ass because they didn't account for all of the scheduling, coordination, sleeving, uh, multiple visits to the job site. There's just so many uh, different factors involved. So anyway, that's, I would say that that's one of the most standard practices in this industry is take materialists, add a multiplier sell it, uh, hope for the best, and then cut corners during the project. Try to get it, the, get it in
1: the ground as quickly as possible so that you're uh, maintaining your profit. Right. Yeah. It doesn't make a whole lot yeah. of sense.
0: Okay. Not a whole lot of sense. And then you have the other approach where they may just simply negotiate with the customer. Again, this is residential or commercial. And they say, yep, whatever, whatever bids you get will be 10% lower than the lowest guy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So we won't won't spend any time talking about that one because we know what happens there. You get what you pay for. And then you have more sophisticated companies that either create their own estimating software or they may use uh, over-the-counter estimating tools and and, uh, software to do it. In my experience, the company that I worked for, we had a fairly sophisticated Excel sheet. We had a list of... Most of the materials we'd use on a project that would account for things like valves and valve boxes and how many linear feet of one inch pipe and two inch pipe, uh, how many sprinklers, a rotor or a spray head. So we had a list of these, the the major components. And then we would do a takeoff, um, either just a rough count or if it was a commercial project and there was an an existing irrigation design. We do a full material takeoff and then we would take those parts and we would plug them into our Excel sheet. And what the Excel sheet did is it was able to add up our costs. So we had the costs of the parts in there. And then next to each item, we also had a labor value. And this would be a percentage of an hour. Let's say it was a Hunter PGP rotor. We may have something built in there that would say every Hunter PGP rotor on average, it's 15 minutes. So that way, if we had four of them, we'd know that's an hour. And if we had 400, you know, we'd have a much higher total. So we yeah. we added a labor value next to every item on the list. So that was just kind of tabulating as you were putting the equipment in. It, it was also re, uh, collecting the time. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, yep, great. so once you plugged There's in all your materials at the bottom, you'd have your material list and then you would have your labor in hours how many hours and then you could use that to provide a material markup you know to cover uh, holding costs and add to profitability and then you could plug in a a wage so if it was $20 an hour or $40 an hour or a union at a higher you could put in your average labor dollar per hour and then you would have the raw costs to cover the the project here the costs and then you could add a margin to that. You could say, let's add a 20% margin, a 35% margin, a 50% margin. You would take those direct costs, add margin to it, and then you would come up with a, a final, call it a selling number or the bid number. And what was interesting about that is that depending on the types of materials being installed, the time can vary. So the last piece that we would always add to that is we would take the profitability and we would divide it by the man hours on the project. And that would give us what we would call a man hour return. So for okay. every man hour being spent, here's the return to the, to the company. And we did that to sort of provide us with a, almost a, a, a baseline return on time. Okay, and I'll give you an example how this can get skewed really quickly. If you took all of your materials and you marked it up 30%, let's say, if you have some really expensive equipment, let's take a a controller, okay? Let's say you're going to hang a controller on the wall. It doesn't always take more time to hang an expensive controller, let's say a $3,000 central control or web controller, or a standard 24 or 36 zone controller. The amount of time to put it on the wall, wire up your valves, provide power, turn it on is the same. But if you're gonna make a 40% margin markup on a $3,000 controller or a 40% markup on a $150 controller, takes the same amount of time. Your man hour return for the expensive controller is huge because you've made way more product margin dollars in the same amount of time.
1: Yeah. So, so I mean, and, and that makes it very clear that the, um, that the man hours can be the more important factor in all of that, in that the products could cost whatever.
0: And, right. And the man hours is really important and it helps you know whether you've potentially overbid the project if you're too high. So sometimes you can't put the same gross margin markup on your parts for all parts. So sometimes you gotta take your expensive equipment and put a smaller markup, if in fact it's gonna require the same amount of time to get you back down to a man hour return that's reasonable and mm-hmm. competitive. So the key being competitive, we all wanna be able to sell as high a price as possible but there comes a point where you may just be pricing yourself out and a lot of times contractors won't know why because they don't know where to look and it's rated right right. that man hour return. So in any case, and I still come across that today uh, with baseline products. I do find contractors that just simply want to put a 40 or 50% markup on something and it doesn't always take that much time. And so we want to be, like I said before, making sure that when we're selling something for high price, we're providing high value, except for times when the price might be so high, you can't provide enough value to even it out and right. then you become expensive. So it's just something that you need to watch out for and be a little careful of. I think for me, I was just fortunate enough to be in a situation that I was able to work with a lot of uh, general contractors and be in a lot of pre-bid meetings and do a lot of estimating and, um, and proposals that I was able to see just a lot of projects and a lot of different ways to bid um, and get a lot of feedback from general contractors that would be open with their proposals and show all of the different proposals that were coming in.
1: So, so how much fudging goes on after you've plugged everything into your estimator and you're looking at things, are you, are you trying to cut corners here and there to get the price to be more attractive? Are you, um, you know, obviously you have some sort of methodology, but is there, where does a human element come in there? Do you take a look at that afterwards and go, Oh, well, we can, we can adjust this a little bit here to make this
0: look more attractive or, well, you you always have to know what it's actually going to take to do the work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what I mean by that is if this project is in a city and there's sleeving involved, let's say this is a great example, and they want you to come in and put four inch sleeves between every traffic or parking lot island to put your pipe to get those sleeves in may take you. Oodles of trips to the site. They may say, hey, tomorrow we're gonna to be putting pavement down on this side. You gotta come put your sleeves in. It could be that the time involved to put the sleeves in is astronomical. And it it's always important to know those types of things up front versus just having a standard sleeving price to, to know something about how the job's gonna be constructed. But I also think that what we find is low bid scenarios in commercial projects. Uh, General contractors are notorious for just going with low bid. It's also in our disadvantage that we are oftentimes the last trade involved in a commercial project. The last thing to go in is the landscape. They've already furnished the building. They've bought all the expensive trash cans. They spent $5,000 on bike racks. And the last thing to get done is irrigation. So sometimes there's just no money left. They've been over budget on every single aspect of the trade. And here comes irrigation. Irrigation.
1: And, and the irrigation is the catch-up catch up point. <laughs> well, all right. We gotta slash this down. I got 32 bucks left yeah. to it. What can you do?
0: And so <laughs> some contractors know this. I'm not gonna say it's good or bad. It oftentimes is just it's never quite right. So, but there are some some contractors that are notorious for being a low price contractor. They get the job because the general contractor is happy with the low price. Sometimes the general contractor doesn't know right from wrong either. And then they'll come back with some change orders. They'll find ways to add to the contract over time, you know, increase their price. So if they had just bid it correctly the first time, they would have been higher and may or may not have gotten the project, but they come in low and then look for change orders. So when it, as it relates to your question or your comments about, Back checking your man hours and knowing if you've made the right estimates on your bid and if you're you feel like you have everything covered. Mm-hmm. The company that I worked for, being the scale and size that it was, we had a check, we had a system of checks and balances. What I mean by that is the guy selling the project, which was me at the time, did not estimate their own systems. You can see how this could be a, a slippery slope. If I'm the estimator and I want to sell the project, I could estimate it incorrectly make this uh, project on paper look like a fat margin, sell it at a fat margin and receive a deep commission check. Right. I basically rigged the whole thing. So right. what we had was one person whose job was the estimator and it was their job to make sure everything was covered, that the company wasn't gonna go out of business if it was sold. And then it was the salesperson's job to add margin to that base price. So I could not adjust the estimate There was a floor, if you will. I could only sell it for more and then get paid commission on that margin. Oh, okay. If the project were changing and there was some scope changes, then I could go back to the estimator and say, hey, these six zones in the back, nope, they're not gonna irrigate that. Let's take that out of the the estimate. So we had a checks and balance system and that also applied for the landscape and maintenance side of things. And then after the job was sold, the project, the work would be turned in. It'd be recorded as the like uh, pre-construction costs, the budget, so that the operations team could take the budget and know what they have to build and work off of, okay? okay. And at the end of the project, they would take the expenses related to that specific project, put them back into the computer system. And this would be something that we might call a job cost analyst. And the job cost analyst would say, hey, this system was estimated at a $10,000 system, but it costs you know, 12,500. So we, we missed the estimate a little bit or it came in under budget. So we overestimated the system and that's how over time you get better because you have to know what you've estimated it for and you have to know what you installed it for. And then you want to see how close did I come? Where did I miss either under or over to improve the system? Right. Oh, so that, yeah, that makes
1: all the sense in the world as well. Just to go back and see, where everything stood. So how, how often were you, do you, like at the beginning, did you, were you over or under? You, did you feel like there was
0: a... Yeah, well, and honestly, I wasn't as privy to those things. Okay. okay. <laughs> as sort of the sales and design right. and estimating to just be sort of cranking out new work. But because of the size and scale of the company, they had a whole team of job cost analysts that could look at the projects to make sure that they weren't coming in always under budget. And that we were maintaining the, the correct profitability long-term.
1: I suppose you'd probably hear about that pretty quickly to, to begin with if that was happening consistently that you were um, Yeah.
0: And I think it's something that small companies, budget. if you are mm-hmm. one guy in a truck, you're not going to have time to analyze all the projects this way. And it, and it may not be necessary because the guy that owns the company doesn't want to lose his own money. So he'll be very careful to try to cover bidding costs because he's involved with each step of the process. He's met with the homeowner. He's put the estimate together. Hand of the design, he sold it. He's trying to make money the the whole way. I think it's sort of like in the middle where companies start to grow and they add people. That if they have somebody estimating and selling um, and getting paid commission on that, it's not their company, you know, that's on the line if it doesn't make money. It's really on the company to make sure that they are making money. And so, the bigger the company grows, the more sort of checks and balances that need to be put in place to ensure there's not a leak somewhere. Right, it's sure. Not sinking. I I read stories all the time
1: or I'll see comments um, online from contractors I'm, and I'm speaking mainly about the the one guy in the, in the one truck who who say that early on they found themselves, you know, working huge weeks with many hours of effort to realize that they weren't really making any money on their on the time that they were putting in. And that down the line, it seems like a lot, of, a, a lot of those people, if they want to survive, are charging what things are worth and then also factoring in the time a little bit better so that they're actually making a profit. I've seen that story a lot of times, it, you know, just reading around the internet yeah. and things. So
0: I think there's definitely something to be said about focusing on profitability. Any one of us would rather work less and make more instead of either work more and work the, and make the same or work more and make less. Sure. <laughs> So anyway, it's kind of interesting now being in the position that I am getting feedback that we see through Sprinkler Supply Store as well as through the, the contractors that I've gotten to know over the years working uh, with Baseline in different parts of, of the country, that there just really still isn't a super clear process for bidding and estimating. And it really just comes with, um, with time. The longer you do it, the better that you get. be fun if anyone's listening and they'd like to share or reach out to us with some of their tools and equipment that they use. We'd love to hear about ways that you guys are estimating systems and what's working for you. So that'd be sweet.
1: Yeah, that would be great to hear. Um, we, we get a little bit of it every once in a while on the on the Facebook page or the uh, customers calling in or whatever. It's interesting always to see how people get to that final uh, cost.
0: Well, awesome, Denny. Thanks for uh, being an ear so I could talk and not have to hear myself talk, but chat with you. Appreciate it. And That was uh, good stuff. Cool. Have a great afternoon. Hey, thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. All right, guys, that's going to wrap up this episode of the Sprinkler Nerd show. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. Listening to me talk about some of my early experiences working for a large commercial contractor and that there were some takeaways that you can use in your business as well. Now, I'm not as don't, I don't have my finger on the pulse as much now as I used to 10 years ago. So if there's things that you heard that could be updated, uh, changed, or if you're using some really cool new estimating software or sales software that you find valuable to your business, I'd love to hear about it. And perhaps we could even have you join us on an episode of the sprinkler nerd show and talk about your best practices for bidding and estimating. If you want to ask any other questions about this episode or learn more, head over to sprinklernerd.com and you can find all the links to our social media groups. Of course, this is still a young podcast and we're still building our audience and would love to hear from all of you. If you want to leave us a review on or comment on iTunes, we would love to hear it. Uh, we will read and respond to every comment that we receive. And until the next episode, happy sprinkling and we'll talk to you soon.